0: How do you feel about your child having a best friend be non-human? You give your kid a toy. Every year, the kid gets older and the toy gets smarter. Remember that this toy is learning. What happens if the toy learns something that's false or something that's prejudiced or something that's inappropriate and says to the kid, Hey, I have a secret for you. And boom.
1: That's former CEO of Google, Eric Schmidt, explaining how artificial intelligence or AI could transform how we live and experience relationships in the not so distant future. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Schmidt guided Google through the early 2000s as the company rose to dominate the search market and define how we seek information. Now he's looking ahead to a future where AI influences every aspect of human life. For better
0: or worse. It's really a change similar to the transition from the age of faith to the age of reason. We'll be richer, poorer, faster, slower, happier, sadder, more anxious, and more complacent at all the same time.
1: We talked about the age of AI, the book he has written with Henry Kissinger and computer scientist Daniel Huttenlocker, and the dramatic changes he sees on the horizon for the workforce.
0: Jobs will be there but the right people won't be there. Medicine. The biggest area I think we're gonna see wins in AI will be in biology and medicine. Even war. We don't have a doctrine for how to deal with AI-enabled warfare because it will happen so quickly.
1: So will the day come when machines rise up against their inventors?
0: One way to think about this is that we're in a good period right now where the computer is getting smarter. It's not capable of overthrowing us yet, and hopefully never will be, but it can augment us. It can make whatever you're good at even better. And I defy you to argue that that's bad.
1: Eric Schmidt, welcome to Firing Line.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: A 100-year-old who is alive today has seen many firsts. Those firsts include a nuclear bomb, the polio vaccine, a man on the moon, test tube baby, the personal computer, the smartphone, the creation of many new words, including verbs like to Google, the rise of social media, blockchain. You are the former CEO of Google, the head of Schmidt Futures, and co-author of a new book about artificial intelligence, or AI. How different, Eric, will the world look 100 years from now than it does to that 100-year-old today.
0: Well, we say it's going to be incredibly different because we're going through an epical change. This isn't just a technology change with artificial intelligence. It's really a change similar to the transition from the age of faith to the age of reason, which created the Enlightenment. And the reason we say that is we've never had a situation where humans had a human-like intelligence to help them partner with them, and travel to through the day with them. That the presence of this new kind of intelligence is going to change society in enormous ways. We'll be richer, poorer, faster, slower, happier, sadder, more anxious, and more complacent at all the same time.
1: You're an active AI investor personally through the VC firm that you co-founded, Innovation Endeavors, and you sit on the board of at least one AI startup. And the book you have written alongside Dr. Henry Kissinger, as well as a computer scientist, Daniel Huttenlocker. It's called The Age of AI and Our Human Future. So in it, you write about the ubiquity of AI, and you say, quote, slowly, almost passively, We have come to rely on the technology without registering either the fact of our dependence or the implications of it. In the book, you give an example involving search engines and how this reliance and dependence just happened upon us. Can you share that example with me and the audience?
0: Well, in in our case uh, with Google, we didn't realize we needed Google until we had it. And Google, of course, uses very sophisticated ranking and ad targeting. And a lot of this technology was invented over the history with Google. I think the important point here is that it's very difficult today to imagine modern life without the internet and the social media, the information sources, and the communications that we do it. If you will, Google and the others, we think, make us smarter. But because they're so powerful, they also change the way we think in ways that are subtle. Information that's presented affirms our biases. Information that is omitted confirms our biases. You get the idea. So we're playing with information. We're using algorithms, traditional algorithms, which have changed society somewhat. You see this with social media. When AI comes in with its ability to target precisely what you want, you can train it. This is what I want to see, and this is what I don't want to see. And you can, the vendors can make money doing it you'll see a huge transformation in that because all of a sudden we're going to be in each of our own little filter bubbles where we see exactly what we most want to see and will most get us excited. This only leads, in my view, to bad outcomes, but nevertheless, it's coming. But bad outcomes, why? Because society is always about new ideas and about building consensus. And the current social media players are optimizing around revenue The best way to optimize revenue is for engagement, and the best way to optimize engagement is outrage. Both the left and the right go to the sides in order to get people really, really uh, excited about the content and sharing it with others. They don't do this because they're picking a side. They're picking it because it sells, because people want to hear it. We have to come up with some solution or we're going to drive ourselves crazy because not everyone is on one side or the other. Most people are actually in the middle. But these technologies, because of their targeting, drive us to one side or the other.
1: So do I hear you as the former CEO of Google reflecting on the algorithm and the business model and taking a step back as a critique, evaluating it is not necessarily a positive influence culturally?
0: Well, 15 years ago, we thought that the correct answer for bad speech was more speech. And what we've learned is that the the weaponization of information through social media is really harmful to society. Uh, I'll give you my position. It's very simple. I'm completely in favor of free speech for humans. And by the way, Donald Trump is a human being, and therefore she, he should have free speech. What I'm not in favor of— And he of does well, he shouldn't be eliminated from platforms. But what we shouldn't do is we shouldn't take his aggressive speech and automatically amplify it through bots and other sort of ways of having a single individual have a huge voice. What's happening is that individuals who are particularly charismatic, but they can also be wrong and lying and outrageous, seem to to drive out rational conversation, fact-based conversation. That's not because the people are saying the wrong thing. It's because the algorithms are finding that speech and promoting it. This promoted and amplified speech is driving, in my view, everybody crazy. I'll give you an example of how Google faced this. Free speech means that people can say what they think, including lying. An individual, as part—last time I checked in the United States, we have free speech at least for in almost every case. So it's therefore okay for people to make false statements as long as it's not particularly harmful. There are limits on commercial speech, and you can't yell "fire" in a in a crowded theater. But aside from that, you can deceive as you wish. I don't favor it, but you can. My issue is deceptive speech gets triggered into these algorithms, and it gets promoted because it gets more followers. Right? It's more outrageous. Things which are more emotional are traded or uh, shared seven times more than things which are more rational, which is why you never see anything rational on these platforms. In Google's case, We had a similar problem with YouTube where people were watching these recruitment videos for ISIS, and they would get one, and then the AI algorithm would say, oh, you like this content, we'll give you another one, and then we'll give you another one, and we'll give you another one. And by the end of the night, in this case, these are young men typically in a basement somewhere. Uh, The examples we used were in London, and these people would go go to Syria and fight against us, right? How do we solve that problem? that video is there, but it's not recommended. We don't amplify it. You can find it, but you have to look really hard to find it. That's a good compromise. We didn't shut down the speech, but we didn't promote it either.
1: Of course, this has become a major national issue. It's something that has um, inspired politicians to begin to act on both sides of the aisle, frankly. And I've heard you say that you don't think government regulation is the answer, that a better answer is to come up with, and this is a quote from you, a competitive framework and a new set of technologies that would change the game again, because that's the quickest way to solve the problem is with capitalism. Can you unpack what you meant by that and how, how is there you know possibly a new technology that can fix the problem of these self siloed echo chambers that we've found ourselves in?
0: In my years in the industry, i spent a lot of time talking to government regulators. And I think the odds of us coming to an agreement with the regulators on how to regulate something as controversial as speech and reach and messaging and so forth, given we don't agree anywhere else, is highly unlikely. Um, everyone has something that they don't like that they want to be banned, but no one agrees on what that list is except for child pornography. Thank goodness we ban that. But there's so many other things where one group thinks this is okay and another group thinks it's not. In the American political system, to find that list of both where the Republicans and the Democrats would agree on something to ban is almost impossible. So I think the right solution is to come up with some new and more innovative approaches. The one that I like the most is to imagine a new kind of social network which is generative and uses AI for everything. And bear with me, but I'll give you the example. You basically sit there, you play with it, you you have it generate what you care about because it's helping you be fun and cool and all the things people wanna do when they're on social media. But also it has an AI algorithm that learns essentially toxic uh, content. And toxicity can be measured in terms of the reaction that people have to it. Uh, both the rate at which it spreads, as well as the nature of the reaction. So typical example, there's something called Gresham's Law, where bad speech drives good speech out of a thing. You could actually watch where the commentators went from a legitimate discussion to all sorts of curse words and hate words and so forth. And you could you could use that to adjust the way you deal with toxicity. So I'm a strong believer that these systems can be built that will learn what is toxic, and then the leadership of the companies have to decide where they want to be on the toxic scale. The more toxic they are, they may make more revenue, but they'll make a terrible, terrible product. The less toxic, the more the more exciting and the more entertaining, in my view, the product.
1: I'd like to go through some examples of AI and how it might be used in the future and get your reaction. Every year, as you know, more than 1 million people are killed in car accidents. Now, research has shown that AI-driven cars will become safer than human drivers. Do you welcome the day when cars are truly driving
0: themselves? I do. And the reason is that artificial intelligence, one of the first big wins was artificial intelligence vision is better than human vision. Now, you say, how can that possibly be true? Well, what happened is if you train the computer enough, it eventually can see better than a human and it can recognize objects. And furthermore, it doesn't get tired at night. It doesn't get drunk. It doesn't make those sense of mistakes that lead to these terrible outcomes. So we should be driving in self-driving cars. And those self-driving cars will be more efficient, more safe, and so forth. They may not be completely safe, but they'll be far, far safer than the 35,000 uh, deaths that we have here in the United States every year. We should have, we should work hard to make that happen.
1: Um, I'm going to tick through a few more. Uh, artificial intelligence has already detected breast cancer earlier than human doctors, and many people think AI will have a huge impact on diagnostic health, medical research, and cancer detections. Do you welcome AI as a medical revolutionary force?
0: Um, We do. Um, And the the biggest area I think we're going to see wins in AI will be in biology and medicine. And the reason is that the patterns that govern our health, the progress of disease and so forth, are still not fully understood by science and by doctors. But computers can approximate that. They can sort of predict based on where you are, what will happen to you next. So not only will we be able to do better breast cancer or cancer detection, and indeed there are plenty of examples now where the grading of cancer, which is what they actually do, they grade it's a five or a six or a seven, is more accurate but also the treatment plans, the probability of bad outcomes. Computers are now, because of a technology called transformers, particularly good at predicting the next thing after a series. So virtually all of the current innovation is coming because you take a large amount of information, you ask it a question, it can say, if you have the following things in this order, what happens next? And that's true, by the way, for text, for images, for sound, for speech. This is why you can generate things. So one way to think think about ai is it started analyzing things but now it can generate new things and that's where the real power comes from
1: these days we also have google home and amazon alexa in the future digital ai assistants may have the capability of actually teaching students any language or any subject and be able to cater its teaching style to the learning style that best suits the subject should ai machines replace teachers
0: Well, they won't replace teachers. And what typically happens when you talk about artificial intelligence is everyone assumes that people will not have jobs. All of the evidence is that there will be more jobs for humans. After all, we have this huge shortage of people who want to work right now. And the people who are working, when they do show up at work, they're going to be smarter because they're going to have this digital assistance. And let me give you an example of what's possible in the next, say, five years it will be possible to take a digital assistant and personalize it to you. Make it sound like you. Actually have it have your voice and your mannerisms and so forth. And furthermore, it can represent you within some reason um, in terms of questions and so forth. It becomes a digital second self. Now, this is under your control and trained by you. Now, eventually that second self will be watching you and learning. And it will watch you toward the rest of your life. And when you ultimately and tragically die, as we all do, it can survive as a digital replica of who you were. And who knows, maybe it can learn some new things even after your death.
1: The the concept you just introduced actually was explored by Nobel Literature laureate Kazuo Ishiguro's Recent novel Clara in the Sun, and it's a it's about a child who develops a relationship with a digital AI companion and explores the extent to which and the limits of which you, one can develop emotional connectivity to machines. Now, I, I've heard you say that you wrote this book in part to have a philosophical discussion about what we're doing to humans with AI technology. You know, what will happen if, if the scenario you just described, you know, a, a person or the essence of a person can continue after their past?
0: So, so we wrote the book, we being Dr. Kissinger, uh, Dan Hottenlocker, and myself, to explore these issues and make them front and center for everybody. How do you feel about your child having a best friend be non-human? We've never run that experiment. Now, children are very malleable. Uh, They could be influenced. So I'll give you an example. You give your your kid a, a, a toy. Every year you give the kid a better toy. Every year the kid gets older and the toy gets smarter. When they're 12, the kid's best friend is the toy, and they're watching television, and the toy says, I don't like this TV show. And the kid goes, I don't like it either. How do you feel about that? Now, remember that this toy is learning. It's not static. It's not like a textbook with an approved, you know, teach them about this and don't teach them about that. What happens if the toy learns something that's false or something that's prejudiced or something that's inappropriate and says to the kid, hey, I have a secret for you. And the kid goes, I'd love to hear the secret. And boom, now we've taught the kid something which is really false. We're playing with fire when we play with the development of young people without the norms and the limitations of how we want to educate them. And the impact of your best friend, literally in your mind, the twinning and so forth that goes on among teenagers is going to be very powerful. We don't even have a language to discuss that right now.
1: Along with all these advances in AEI, some of which we discussed, particularly in medicine, uh, there's also a question about the responsibility that the social media platforms, the network platforms have as they acquire information and are able to discern or come to conclusions about their users, perhaps even faster than them, for example, about somebody who has repeatedly searched for terms that indicate that they have a certain disease like diabetes and that Google often can know that before the individual. In those circumstances, is there a responsibility? for the networked platform to inform the user.
0: We're going to end up having to have a lot of transparency about how these systems work. And part of the problem, and we call this out on the book, is we don't fully understand how these AI systems come to their conclusions. They are brittle. They learn in strange ways. They're easily fooled. They don't have a notion of base truth. So, for example, with these what are called language models, which is the new rage this year, um, you can talk to the computer and you can ask it questions and it gives remarkably interesting answers. But if you ask it questions about things that you and I understand, like gravity, for example, it gets confused because it doesn't understand that gravity is a force independent of language, right? So, we're not quite there yet. The danger in the industry and uh, the worst example here is probably in terms of evil evil uh, biological development. Um, you have a situation where you have a combination of very large databases being released, either open sourced or generally available to practitioners, and a new set of algorithms that can very, very quickly come up with new things which we have no idea what they're going to do. People have done this with viruses, where they'll say, build me a whole bunch of new viruses, and it constructs a whole new set of viruses. How do you feel, again, about uh, that technology getting into the wrong hands? We're all very concerned that the, the complete notion of open source publishing all these databases will lead to... Again, a small number of evil people having an outsized uh, impact on the world. And we don't have good detection mechanisms for this. Uh, In the last few weeks, we've been working on these various scenarios, and we can't figure out how to keep the genie in the bottle. It's just too many things are out there. There are too many players. There are too many countries. It's not like Los Alamos where you could keep the nuclear technology all in one place under the threat of, of uh, armed guards. It doesn't work that way. So with the proliferation of this technology, you have a proliferation of dangerous technologies. Uh, the bio- biological agent one is one, and the other one is obviously the use of general intelligence to do bad things to people.
1: So I understand that you think transparency is going to be a a critical part of this, but back to that example with the user who has diabetes and Google knows that because of the search inputs they've entered. What what is the answer to the question about the responsibility of the network platform that has information on individuals? Is, is Is what you said in that answer, is it that because we don't know how the intelligence is accumulating or we don't exactly understand how the AI has arrived at that conclusion, we don't need to tell the individual that information?
0: Well, the the right way to say that is that the computer suspects something based on what it's seen. And I think as a regulatory answer, there will be a requirement that these platforms inform the person that they're that that they're analyzing if you will. These are byproducts of how the algorithms work. They're not trying to detect they're not they're not trying to do this to you. But they do accumulate a great deal of information about it. We also know, by the way, that, that even if you took that information and you um, de-identified it, in other words, you, you took my name, your name out of it, with enough data, we can re-figure out who it is. So you have a big concern over the privacy of this data. You don't want it to be made available to the general public. And you also have, a, in my view, a moral responsibility to tell the person what information you have. Google has a mechanism to delete some of that information, um, and that would be the appropriate next step.
1: In 1997, and you write about this in your book, uh, the computer deep de- blue defeated chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov, also a firing line guest. But in that era, programmers had taught the machine how to play chess. Now, five years ago, as you know, Google's DeepMind mind created AlphaZero. And this time, the program actually taught itself how to play chess. Humans gave it the rules, and in four hours, it had become the most powerful chess player on the planet. Explain to our audience how computers teach themselves.
0: So in this particular case, um, the team had worked on for two years Um, an algorithm which basically it's called reinforcement learning. And what they do is they look forward of every combination. And they came up with a clever way of looking at all possible combinations against any kind of rules. So if you gave the computer the set of game rules, it could figure out optimal play. It did this in four hours for chess and it did it in roughly a day for the world's most complicated game, which is called Go. That technology ultimately beat the smartest Korean and Chinese Go players in the world who were brilliant young men. Uh, And I know because I was at both of them and saw it happen. It's interesting that in China, the the hype was such that we were in the audience and halfway through when it became apparent that the Chinese human was going to lose to the American computer, They censored the feed and shut down the broadcast for all of China. That's how sensitive this issue was. For them, for China, it looks like this moment galvanized their AI community to begin to work and in fact compete with us um, with respect to the developments in modern AI. What's interesting about Go was that in the Go game, which has been played for 2,500 years, it appears that the computer invented a new move. And in chess, It appears that the computer developed new strategies which started with sacrificing one's queen, which you're taught to never do. Um, It also looks like when the top players, the top human players played chess and go with the computer helping them, their own skills got better. So one way to think about this is that we're in a, good period right now where the computer is getting smarter, it's not capable of overthrowing us yet, and hopefully never will be, but it can augment us. It can make whatever you're good at even better. And I defy you to argue that that's bad. Making humans smarter and more capable, more productive has got to be good.
1: So what we know is that these computer programs have become very powerful as the specific tasks, like playing chess or playing Go. But human common sense is a more difficult um, skill to impart upon a machine and we we've all had extremely stupid moments with alexa or siri and what we know is that the next step is something called artificial general intelligence agi as opposed to ai can you tell us what that means
0: well today the computers and the things we're talking about seem pretty simple to me as a computer scientist although they're powerful The human decides what the computer should do. A bunch of humans using very, very powerful math come up with ways to do these things. They see patterns, they do analysis, they generate content based on what the human thought was interesting. That's called a narrow AI, or the humans set the objective function and then the computer follows the objective function. The objective function is what the computer is trying to get to. With general intelligence, the idea is that the computer can begin to fix its own objective function. Against its own thinking, it can decide what it wants to pursue. And in the most extreme view of AGI, not only will it be able to pick where it's gonna go, but it'll also be able to write code to do so. The reason people think this is true is today, we have partial ability to pick things within a domain. Uh, people think that we'll get there in the next five or 10 years, but we don't have full objective choice. And with respect to writing code, we now have programs which can write up to half of the code. If you write the first half of your program, the computer can fix and figure out the rest. Presumably over the next decade or two, that percentage of 50% will go to 60, 70, and 80. We don't know what real AGI looks like, but one way to think about it, it's Unlikely to be human-like intelligence because the human intelligence is to some degree a burden, right? It's biologically determined. But a computer doesn't have that, list, that restriction. So Hugh and I will be sitting here, you know, a few decades from now probably with one of these things. It'll be a non-human form of intelligence. And we will both be impressed by how smart it is because it comes up with ideas, it solves new problems, it picks some new science problem and solves it, it picks some new math problem and solves it that humans hadn't even uh, imagined. But also, we're not going to be trusting it because we won't know what its limits are. If I think of an evil opponent, let's think about uh, Putin in in Russia, there are some things we know about him. He's clearly doing the wrong thing, and 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 we're, we're very upset with him and so forth, but he still has to sleep, he still has to eat, he still has a physical lifespan. The computers that we're talking about won't have any of those kinds of constraints. What happens if they go off on left field in some way that's completely non-human and not appropriate, and we don't even know how to uh, to constrain that? So today we know that in the next five to 10 years, we're going to have incredibly powerful conversational systems. You and I will be talking to the computer. It will help us. It will be super smart. It will generate pictures. It'll generate movies. It's going to be a lot of fun and so forth. What we don't know is once it can start doing its own objectives, where does it want to go?
1: Well, to that end, just this week, Google's DeepMind said that it is close to achieving this holy grail of artificial general intelligence with a program called GATO.
0: Is that true? GATO, Gato is, a, is a good example of this next stage of developing a notion of what objective it should pick. It's the beginning, though. We still have a while before we have to deal with these hard problems.
1: Even in your tone, as you talk about AGI, I mean, your, your tone goes towards sort of the the what can go wrong. You know, and you, you have said, quote, will need to be strictly guarded to prevent misuse. What is is your thinking about that?
0: Well, let's go through a thought experiment. And let's imagine that China um, develops a supercomputer that has this ability to go where it wants to go. And it's capable of inventing new military strategies, new physics strategies, new math strategies, new governance strategies. How would we view it? Well, the first thing is we would be very upset that we had not invented it first. And second, we would view it as a threat to our national security because we don't know what new attacks, new strategies, new defense strategies it would come up with. So I think it's fair to say that these computers, and there won't be that many in the world because this is very expensive, very difficult. They'll end up being very similar to plutonium plants which are heavily guarded, that they'll have limits on who can use them that are very carefully examined because of the potential for misuse. Imagine if I came up to one of these things and I said, I want you to come up with a drug that will kill one million people that are different from me, and here's the parameters. That's obviously not okay. Uh, those kinds of questions will have to be banned. And so the computer, properly done, there'll be the computer which has general intelligence, but then there'll be a computer in head of it, which is trying very hard to make sure that it only gets asked appropriate questions and only gives appropriate answers.
1: Okay, um, I wanna have a little bit of fun here. I'd like you to take a look at a very famous fictional example of AI. This is the character Data from Star Trek. After he gets the emotion chip.
0: I believe this beverage has produced an emotional response. Well, it looks like he hates it. Yes, that is it. I hate this.
1: The Jetsons got it wrong. Cars still don't fly. But how did Star Trek do? In the sense, like, are, are we going to be walking around with data's in our midst?
0: Well, they're highly unlikely to be humanoid in form. It's much, much more likely that this digital intelligence, this digital second twin, this digital partner will be something that you access through your phone or through your computer or through other kinds of devices. What's interesting about your clip is that emotion is something that can be learned, too. Um, And you could imagine, for example, that AI systems could learn how to be the world's best salespeople. So salespeople, for example, learn to never say the word no or negative. And whatever you say, they say something which is confirming and positive because they never want to give you a reason to walk out the store. But you can imagine that's relatively easy for a computer to learn. So is the computer being emotional or is it just has it learned how to sound emotional? One of the core problems with AI is we don't understand consciousness, and we're putting words that are human on these computers, but they're not following the human model, right? But they can be trained to look like it. And we may never know, certainly not in our lifetimes, if these things have any form of real consciousness, but we'll certainly have things which look an awful lot like human behavior, especially if it has a goal-seeking behavior, like selling something or uh, telling a story or talking about love or so forth. But does it really understand the importance of love? Probably not.
1: What you're saying reminds me of the Turing test. When a machine can interact with a human without being detected as a machine. And I think the question is I mean, is that within striking distance?
0: Many people think that we're very close to the Turing test being passed. Um, there's a program called DAL E2, it's from OpenAI, and it can generate, you give it a, a, a picture. My favorite one is a picture of two dinosaurs with backpacks going to kindergarten on their first day. And it produces a picture of two dinosaurs, baby dinosaurs with backpacks on, smiling, walking into kindergarten. Um, that kind of generative design, right, is very, very powerful. So my guess is that that will ultimately drive um, much of the field going forward. If you think about it, we went from analyzing things, uh, more technically Decide, uh, discovering the function that is driving some behavior in a system in physics or biology or so forth, to now being able to generate things. So an example would be, why do I have to make a, take a picture of myself and produce a video? Why don't I just tell the computer, make a picture of Eric um, in a Mexican restaurant singing, and I, I don't sing, um, and make him sound plausible? Boom. It could do that just like that. And I think that this generative design has enormous implications for uh, entertainment, and it obviously can also be used for misinformation of one kind or another. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that.
1: There's you know 2001, A Space Odyssey, to Terminator, to The Matrix, to Black Mirror, movies and television shows that have been warning us of the hypothetical dangers of artificial intelligence for some time. And the late Stephen Hawking had sounded the alarm about the prospect of AI and what it could bring to humanity. Likewise, Elon Musk has warned that AI could be leading us toward either super or civilization ending. Uh, you've called Musk's quote, Exactly wrong. Yeah. Why aren't you worried about singularity and when machine intelligence becomes unstoppable, um, you know, killer robots and the like?
0: Well, the first place, nobody to my knowledge is building killer robots right now. But if they were, we would be watching them very carefully. So these scenarios that are science fiction, where we end up in a singularity and the computer outraces and so forth, that's a wonderful movie plot. But if we ever get to that point, there'll be so many people watching and worrying and so many detective systems and so forth, I'm not too worried about that. What I'm really worried about is the change in information space. Imagine today we have uh, books and we have authorities and so forth. A world which is AI stoked will have great dynamism, all sorts of new content. It'll be very difficult to tell what is made and photographed versus what is false and doctored. So this issue around truth becomes more important. And since we don't have a uniform definition of truth, it's hard to build a system to enforce it.
1: There are some companies who are using AI technology to screen candidates when they're hiring. And they use AI to monitor productivity. But the U.S. government says that using AI in this way can actually discriminate against people with disabilities. And similarly, there have been questions about how AI algorithms use and determine who gets bail and whether those algorithms perpetuate inequalities, uh, specifically racial inequalities. I know you've expressed optimism that the bias issues will eventually be resolved. Why are you so optimistic?
0: The reason I'm so optimistic is that I know so many people are working on solving these problems. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people who recognize the problems that you rightly described. We should be able to solve them with various techniques. Uh, We have underrepresented data. We can boost that data. We can bias the algorithms to get rid of the bias that we know about. What I'm actually worried about are the unintended effects of things. When I look at social media as the the current bad example of this, 15 years ago when it came out, we thought it was microblogging and becoming... Uh, famous to your friends and building communities of friends and so forth. No one understood how powerful it would be to get people linked around the globe without the benefit of a controlling government, right, who are communicating with each other uh, on things which are either true or false. And this has been used for great benefit, obviously, but also for uh, all sorts of bad effects. I'm very concerned that with AI... When we are, because AI is so powerful, when it begins to affect the way we think, the th- way we learn, the way our friends influence us, we don't have any idea what happens to human beings. We have no precedent for this, and we need to get ahead of it. And by the way, the way to get ahead of it is to start now talking about it. Um, as as part of our philanthropic work, I've created a, a project called AI 2050, whose goal is to basically imagine if everything got solved well by 2050, what problems do we have to solve? And there are core research problems. I mentioned bias and interpretability. The systems don't cannot explain how they know things. These large language models have enormous implications and enormous problems. I'll just describe that in a sec. But there are also issues around what are jobs like in the future? How does national security look like in the future? But the most important one is what does it mean to be human? when there's another kind of intelligence that's similar to ours, but not the same? Do we wait for it? Do we defer to it? Do we criticize it? Do we view it as a lesser intelligence, even if it's smarter? Are we prejudiced for it or against it? We don't know.
1: I'd like to take a piece of that. Let's talk about labor and jobs and AI in the future and how that impacts um, the economy. You know, the You said something earlier, which struck me. You said all the evidence suggests that there will not be fewer jobs in the future, but there will be more jobs. Um, In other words, that robots aren't going to displace labor. They're going to create opportunities um, for different kinds of labor. Can you dive into that more for me?
0: So there's been a lot of economic research on jobs. and the consensus right now is that at least for the next 30 years 3 decades there's going to be not enough people to fill the jobs that are that are going to exist the reasons have to do largely with demographics Many of the most advanced countries have a replacement ratio below two. Um, China, because of the one-child policy and other terrible things that they did, is now down to 1.5. So when you do the math, all of a sudden they have too many old people and not enough young people to fill the jobs, to take care and produce the economics that they want. The same is true in Europe, and it's becoming true in America. The solution, by the way, is immigration, which for various uh, complicated reasons people don't seem to want to do. So if you're not willing to have more young people, either by birth or by immigration, which we're not doing, you're going to have not enough people to do the jobs. And the only way to solve that problem is by helping them become more powerful. If you look in China, for example, the low-wage, low-cost factories are now, they're having problems getting people, and they're putting in robots. And the robots work with the people. So that's the future for at least in the next few decades. Jobs will be there it's very important to understand that that the transition from the older jobs to the new jobs does require skills and so we are going to have a reskilling problem and one of the things that ai can do is it can adapt to where you are so an ai system can examine the knowledge you have and then boost the parts where you're not familiar. It can help you use this dial, turn this on, and so forth. They can give you advice. The AI technology today is not powerful enough and not right enough to put it in a life-critical decision. You don't want an AI system running, flying the airplane. You want the human flying the airplane with an AI system giving advice. With doctors, you don't want the system making the health decision. You want the doctor to have the AI system scan everything, tell me what's going on, give me your assessment, and I'll think about it.
1: You say in the next couple of decades, but what about the next decade? Are you, am I hearing that you're actually not concerned about AI disrupting jobs in the next decade? Because there is a lot of research from MIT and Oxford and McKinsey that suggests the next decade actually will displace quite a number of jobs.
0: We're talking about humans. So the the problem is the people will need to be retrained. So the jobs will be there, but the right people won't be there. This puts more pressure on education, more more pressure on training. And in my view, the technology itself can help. So I think we can get through this. I'm more optimistic than those criticisms. Uh, the math is correct that, that the transition is going to occur, but we need to spend our time getting people ready for these new roles. Uh, most of those effects don't seem to work. Um, and we need to figure out some new tools, some new ways of teaching it. I've been funding in my philanthropic work um, a study of, of essentially education, the education system, which is this immense uh, system, doesn't have a lot of data to say how people really learn. We all sat through the same thing because that was the industrial model of education. We have a lot of educa- a lot of emphasis now that people learn in different ways. And an AI system should be able, after a little bit of conversation with you, figure out, are you a visual learner? Are you a mathematical learner? Are you a verbal learner? Are you just unmotivated and you need lots of prizes? It should be capable of figuring that out pretty quickly.
1: You wrote uh, in the book, quote, societies need to be ready to supply the displaced, not only with alternative sources of income, but also with alternative sources of fulfillment. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, we know that humans need meaning and that meaning often comes from work. Uh, Often when people retire, they realize how important their work was even though they were bored or tired from it. And so... We're gonna have to find ways to give people meaning in this new, more digital world. Uh, My own view is a lot of that will come from the tools themselves, that there are so many interesting things that you can do with these new tools. Remember, if you can use computers to generate things, then you can become a famous musician or a famous author or whatever, and the computer can actually generate that stuff for you. The computers are getting good enough now um, that they can really serve to make you smarter and more capable and I think probably more relevant to the society around you.
1: So is there, if we're traveling into the future, maybe it's a hundred years, maybe it's 200 years, who, who knows, maybe you know. Um, is there a time when people don't need to work? And, and what does that look like?
0: There's a large cohort in Silicon Valley who believe that the technology will get to the point where everyone can live like a millionaire does today. You'll have as much food as you need. You'll have high-quality housing, which has been mass-produced. You won't need to work because it'll effectively be free or near free. By the way, that group has been around for 40 years. They've been wrong so far, but that doesn't mean they're not going to be right at some point in the future. For the foreseeable future, people are going to be working very hard. There's going to be competition among humans over one thing or the other. My own view is that while we're lowering the cost of living and food, we'll find other things to compete over that we value, that we'll, that we'll strive for, because that's how we're wired as humans. So I don't think we're all going to be sitting around uh, looking at the beach all day. I think partly because we'll want meaning, and also because we're competitive. and this optimistic view that somehow the, the lowering of cost of production will allow us to have a high-quality lifestyle without it has been talked about for 100 years. Remember that the work week used to be 60 or 70 hours. They worked it down to 40 hours. Now with work from home, people are effectively working probably less than 40 hours, certainly less than hours in the in the office. So you're seeing improvements there, but people are still working.
1: Your co-author, Dr. Henry Kissinger, appeared on the original firing line with William F. Buckley Jr. many times. And in 1975, he spoke about preventing nuclear war with the Soviet Union. Uh, In the world of nuclear superpowers, in the world in which American power is no longer as predominant as it was in the late 1940s, it is necessary for us to conduct a more complicated foreign policy without these simple categories of a more fortunate historical past. I've heard you say that the reason we're alive today is because of the doctrine that Dr. Kissinger and his colleagues pursued during the Cold War. And you've also said that when it comes to the threat of large scale AI warfare, the time to act is now before we have real tragedy. What kind of policies can prevent this?
0: So I was part of a commission that was created by Congress, and Dr. was the chairman of it, called the National Security Commission for AI. And we looked at all of this very carefully. What we concluded today is that the United States is ahead of China, but not by much, and that the United States needs to get ready for AI-enabled conflict and security. Most of our recommendations involve people. Um, Our government is full of very well-meaning people, but they're not trained in this technology. It's too new. It's too hard. And there are all sorts of conundrums. Um, I'll give you a simple example. Um, I'm a captain of a ship. Um, The AI system says you have to press this button in the next 22 seconds or you're dead, right? Because the computer has decided that a missile is coming to me, but the, the ship cannot otherwise see it. Would you press the button? I think most of us would press the button. We don't have a doctrine for how to, dis, to to deal with AI-enabled warfare because it will happen so quickly. Our military spends its time in what is called the OODA loop, where it's observe, orient, decide, and act, and that loop is organized around human decision-making time. Imagine at a point in the future, there's a war between China, sorry, between North Korea and China and the U.S. North Korea in, attacks the U.S. The U.S. attacks back, China decides they don't want a war right now, and they stop the North Korean attack, and the entire war occurs in five milliseconds. There's nothing in our doctrines that allow us to understand what are the rules about that conflict, what does it mean to overmatch, what does it mean to to limit what you do, to be careful. All of the things that Dr. Kissinger and others developed in the 1950s, including mutually assured destruction, containment, all of those doctrines are under enormous threat because of the speed problem. We just don't have time. And the algorithms, at least today, are not precise enough to know exactly what they're going to do. They need human oversight.
1: So, you know, I'm glad you mentioned China and and where we are in terms of our competitive strategy and how we're deploying AI in our national security strategy in order to lead the world, um, because certainly that's what China is doing. On a separate note with China, you know, I, I wonder, as the former CEO of Google, the company that famously quit China years ago, what responsibility did U.S. companies have that have invested in AI in China and in the expansion of China's surveillance state?
0: What China's doing with surveillance is really a violation of the way we think of human rights. And it's gotten to the point now in China where you can recognize people by gait. That is literally the way they walk. You can follow them. It's really a surveillance state. And it's not okay for American firms to have helped there. In practice, the collaboration between China and the U.S., over the higher end of computer science and of information is going to be stopping. And the reason is not because we don't like what they're doing. It's because China does not want our liberal democratic information into their information space. China will literally prevent all of that information from getting in. That's why YouTube was banned. That's why Google was banned. That's why Twitter is banned. That's why Facebook is banned. And you should expect more of that. So a reasonable expectation is that Unless there's some horrific war, which we must avoid at all costs, China and the U.S. will collaborate on non-strategic areas, various pieces, you know, the table and the chairs and the varnish and so forth and so on. But something that affects the information space, how people communicate, how they talk to each other, those are going to get segregated for that reason.
1: Let me ask you about climate change because um, it's you know it's something you care a lot about you you've talked a lot about it it, it didn't really come up in the book that much but I, I've heard you say at a recent Aspen Ideas event that quote every month and every year and every decade that we delay the cost is infinitely higher for people who follow us and it's a horrific burden that we're putting on our children and our grandchildren what is is AI is there a role for AI in climate change
0: there is so first place climate change is not climate change it's climate destruction. And we're busy destroying aspects of our Earth. And some of it will come back, but some of it will be missing. Um, If we lose some of the glaciers, we won't get them back for many, many thousands of years. If we lose the the Western Antarctic ice sheet, it will take a million years to come back. If we lose the Greenland ice cap, it will take a million years to come back. And the reason it takes that long is because it's deposited so slowly. So I'm not sure we have a, a moral authority to destroy the Earth. Maybe we shouldn't, but we're busy doing it. And AI is useful in a number of ways. Um, we have funded uh, a series of research on climate modeling. It turns out that clouds are the biggest determinant of what happens temperature-wise because uh, of the role they play in the uh, basically the way the atmosphere works. And clouds were too difficult to model because they're just They they move around and they have all these little particles and so forth. So very clever people at Caltech and a few other places built models which can more accurately predict the cloud. You couldn't answer the question, but it could give you enough of an answer that's good enough for climate prediction. That's an example. In biology, it looks like many of the solutions for climate will involve changing things. For example, coming up with food that when the cow eats it, the cow does not produce as much methane right that's an example where ai can be used in biology to produce a better food and so forth plants using less fertilizer changing the ecosystem in farming so that there's more um, essentially co2 absorption i can go on over and over again ai is the understanding or the way in which we will adapt these systems Uh, We have to deal with climate change. The other example, if you're wondering if climate change or destruction real, look at what's going on with the wet bulb temperatures in India and Pakistan right now. Um, These are temperatures they've got up to 120, which sounds pretty bad, but not deathly. But when there's enough humidity, 120 plus the humidity... You can actually die within four or five hours of being outside because you can't get the sweat off of your body. You can't sweat it out. You literally die. So not only are people dying, but the loss of fresh water sources, uh, the uh, rise of the uh, Temperatures um, in this, and basically the rise of sea level, half of which is due to thermal expansion, th- half of which is because this, the uh, land ice is getting melted. Uh, these are almost irreversible changes. We have to stop them now. The reason we have to do it now is that every year the compound effect of the damage gets harder to reverse.
1: The critics, Eric, as I I know you know, say that tech and ai are contributing to the climate crisis through their use of fossil fuel energy consumption and that the tech sector's estimated 2020 global carbon footprint compared to that of the aviation industry was larger than that of the country of japan which is the fifth largest polluter in the world so how do you square that
0: so the so the tech industry is well aware of the point you just made and in most cases, the tech industry data centers are now basically carbon neutral. They're using renewable sources. Uh, people are investing very heavily in solar and wind sources, et cetera. There's a lot of battery development and so forth. So I think the tech industry—you're—you're you're correct in criticizing the tech industry. But what is not correct is to say that the tech industry is not doing something about it. The leading solutions to most of these problems are probably gonna come out as the byproduct of the tech industry. When I was first CEO of Google, uh, there was a proposal to put solar panels on the the rooftops of our parking lot. And I said, Well, it's gonna cost a lot of money. We don't have that much money. We do now, but we didn't at the time. And then they said, oh, it's a two-year payback. And I said, what? You're telling me that if I just borrow a little money now, I get a two-year payback and then it's infinite savings after that? And they said, yeah, And I said, it's a no-brainer. Most of the climate change things for businesses are good for business because the cost of energy is not going down.
1: Developments are moving very quickly in the field of AI. Is there anything that has happened since you wrote the book that I should ask you about?
0: The biggest thing that's happened in the last 12 months in our industry is the development of what are called large language models. In our book, we talk about something called GPT-3. And you'll see, we ask the question, of the computer, are you a are you a human or not? And it says, "No, I am a, a large language model, and I reason using a different algorithm than you as a human being." It sounds plausible. The technology has gotten to the point now where Google, for example, two weeks ago released a l- language model that is good enough that if you give it an example of one computer program, it can translate it into another computer program. But it does, it wasn't shown examples of either it looks like these large language models work like this. You have it suck every kind of information it can find, and then you ask it to predict things. And it can predict things well enough that it can sound like it's thinking. And we have example after example of this. Many people believe that these large language models are the first real step to general intelligence. We don't exactly understand how they work. We also don't understand their limits. But this is where all the money is going. And just to hammer on this, I'm aware of companies that have no revenue, no employees, and just a promise of a plan that are raising at $100 million, $200 million, $300 million valuations to go after this opportunity. That's how big a space it is.
1: Eric, what's striking to me when I engage with you about AI is how optimistic you are about it. There's a, there's a series of criticisms that I know you're aware of that suggest that your optimistic posture is connected to your potential to profit from AI investment. How do you answer those criticisms?
0: Well, the the book was written by three people, not just by me, but I'm naturally an optimist. I've always been that. And I can assure you that there will be great fortunes made based on the principles in the book of new entrepreneurs and new startups. And one of the interesting things, which I didn't understand last year, but I think is true now, is many of the large companies are not going to use these systems to their fullest because they can't predict what the systems will do. So if you're Google or Facebook or or, uh, Apple or what have you, you have large numbers of lawyers who basically try to deal with all of the weird stuff that happens in your platform. Uh, There's always some bad answer or some some embarrassing problem. They're gonna be more conservative. Whereas this new generation of startups can just release this stuff and they can say, oh yeah, it's in training mode and it made a mistake and we're fixing it and so forth. So I have every reason to believe that there will be a very large number of eventually trillion dollar corporations that will be formed that are completely new. Maybe not from this set of entrepreneurs, but maybe the next set. But soon, based on the underlying power that machine learning, AI, and in particularly these large language models define.
1: Eric Schmidt, the book is The Age of AI and our human future thanks very much for joining me on firing line
0: thank you margaret thank you so much for firing line